to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His love, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. Merry Christmas and welcome to a special edition of Glad You Asked. Now, Glad You Asked is a feature we run on this podcast from time to time, answering all of your biblical questions. And over this past week, Michelle and I have asked for your Christmas questions. So tonight we're going to answer some of them. That's right. Merry Christmas. And when it comes to Christmas traditions and celebrations and practices, our listeners want to be sure that they're doing things, so to speak, by the book, the yeah. Bible. That, that's our book. And we want to, we want to help you to, um, to do that by doing our best to give you biblical answers that you need. So in addition to listening to tonight's episode, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode where we'll have even more valuable information for you. Here's our first question. This one's from an Instagram follower, and you can fo- you can find us on Instagram at a word fitly spoken, all one word, just like that. And look for the apples just in case there's another account with that name. But this <laughs> follower's question is, are there any specific Bible verses that tell us that December 25th was when Jesus was born? If not, why was that particular day chosen as the one that we should celebrate his birth? Thanks, and God bless. Love your podcast. Oh, well, that's a great question. And thanks for the kind words of encouragement. Um, Actually, the Bible is silent on the exact dates of Jesus's birth, death, and resurrection. And uh, as for his birth, we really don't even know what time of year it was. Um, We we know that scriptures have a lot to say about Jesus's death happening over Passover on about the 14th or 15th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, but uh, we can only guess at the birthday of Christ. So uh, we do know that the shepherds tending their flocks at night, uh, being outside, you know, when they hear the news of Jesus's birth, as it says in um, chapter uh, two of Luke, uh, that might suggest the springtime, the spring lambing season. So uh, we can guess that in the cold month of December, sheep might well have been tucked in the warmth of shelter at night. And, um, you know, that that just was kind of the way things were. So, but the bottom line is, uh, we really just don't know. Um, So the two questions I've always had, Michelle, is when did we first start celebrating Jesus's birth, since we don't really see any mention of anybody doing that in the early church, and how did we come up with December 25th? So um, those are some questions we've been kind of looking into, and the earliest clue we have about this is um, in about the year 200, uh, 200 years after um, the death of Christ, when people became very interested in determining Jesus's birthday. Now, a couple of Christian groups came up with some proposed dates of uh, May 20th, and another one that they threw out there was April 21st, and then um, about 200 years after that, by the 4th century, it was determined by the Western people of the Roman Empire that uh, December 25th was the day, and in, in the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, <laughs> they had something else going on. It was January 6th, so um, that date, um, uh, you might know, eventually um, became known as the Feast of the Epiphany, commemorating the arrival of the Magi in Bethlehem, but the period between that uh, was later known as the 12 Days of Christmas. Okay, so you can read all about how Augustine of Hippo mentions a, a local Christian group, uh, the Donatists, who apparently kept Christmas festivals on December 25th. And so um, Christ's birth was celebrated this way for hundreds of years on the 25th. And it really wasn't until 
the 12th century that a very popular theory emerged that Christians uh, used Christmas. It was borrowed from a pagan celebration, and that's really just another spin-off of these pagan solar festivals. So according to this popular theory, the early uh, Christians deliberately chose these dates to encourage the spread of Christmas and Christianity throughout the Roman world. Well, that doesn't account for the you know, hundreds of years that people already were celebrating it on the 25th. So even though Christians celebrated December 25th for those hundreds of years before that theory was born, um, all of this gets bolstered by our own modern traditions and trappings that actually kind of do reflect pagan customs, which is why many people just assume that December 25th must be pagan. Well, of course it isn't. But anyway, there's really so much more to be read about this, Michelle, in the historical writings. And we're going to put some links on in the show notes so that you can read them for yourself because um, you could spend days and days reading this stuff. And it is really interesting, but uh, don't have time to do it all here. But I hope that uh, kind of answered that question. Yeah, and um, I I've found it really interesting to to read through those things as well, and and uh, and uh, get some historical perspective on what was going on. Um, I've also had some readers uh, comment to me that they think it's lying to say that uh, or to celebrate. Christmas on December the 25th or to tell mm-hmm. their kids that Jesus was born on December the 25th. And, and so I would just say, you know, it's, it's not lying. If you say, we don't really know when he was born, but um, right. we've just decided to celebrate on December 25th. And that was just kind of the, the decision that everybody came to. So that's, that's all that I would add is, is just yeah. that, uh, you know, we're, we're not really sure when it was, but it's always great to, we should be celebrating the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection of Christ every Sunday every day really yeah exactly Christians so you know December 25th shouldn't be any different (laughs) yeah and I don't really know of anybody who's really arguing you know and and holding that stance that Christ was absolutely born on on December 25th it really kind of becomes a straw man argument right exactly All right. So we've got some more questions here. Um, Let's see. This next question was emailed to us. And so you can always reach us, by the way, on our email at a word fitly spoken podcast. So it's AWFS podcast at gmail.com or easier yet, you can go to our website, a word fitly spoken dot life and just click on the contact tab rather than memorizing that uh, long email there. So we've got this email from Robin and she asked this question. There's an issue I'd like to get your input on, especially here at the holidays. Are nativity scenes and Christmas pageants a second commandment violation? I'm seeing a segment of Christianity that holds fast to any visual representation of Christ being sinful. What do you think, Michelle? Well, it's a super question, and thank you, Robin, for sending it in. I know I had the same question myself a few years ago. Um, I was hearing some good, godly... um, Presbyterian friends, these particular friends happen to be Presbyterian, and they were saying that they believe that any sort of representation of Jesus, whether it's a nativity scene in your home or maybe a live baby playing the part of Jesus in a Christmas program, or even non-Christmassy representations like illustrations of Jesus in a Christmas, uh, illustrations of Jesus in a children's Bible, or uh, maybe pictures a missionary might use on the mission field to tell the story of Jesus, that all of these things and any other sort of imagery or representation of Jesus, even if it's a reverent depiction and it's being used to point people to Christ and it isn't being worshiped, just having those representations of Jesus at all breaks the second commandment. Now, 
of course, I'm sure all of us as Christians would agree that if you're worshiping that little figurine of Jesus in your nativity set, or if you're bowing down in front of a picture of Jesus and praying to that picture, that's definitely breaking the second commandment against idolatry. But the idea here is that simply making or owning or displaying a representation of Jesus, even if you're not worshiping it, is breaking the second commandment. Mm. So now I don't know how you grew up. Well, I know how you grew up, Amy. So this is probably not something (laughs) that that you faced as you were growing up. But as a Southern Baptist growing up, this is something I had never heard of before. And it worried me because I thought, well, have I been sinning all my life? I mean, I've had children's Bibles with pictures of Jesus in them. And I've had nativity scenes all my life and all that. And so I thought, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not sinning. So I want to find out about this. So I, I did some digging through scripture to find the answer. And after studying scripture and applying it to the question, you know, although I deeply love and respect my friends who hold the belief that images of Jesus are a second commandment violation, I really just don't see that scripture bears out that idea. So let me share with you why. The first thing we want to be sure to do is go to the Ten Commandments and review the Second Commandment. So this is Exodus 20, verses 4, and the first part of verse 5. And here's what it says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, so putting aside nativity scenes and children's Bibles and all of that, let's take a look at what this scripture says. So the first thing we want to do is consider the big picture context of Exodus 20. So we want to think about what's going on in the history and culture of Israel at that time. Well, God was setting apart Israel from other nations as his own special possession and setting them up and establishing them as a nation. And the primary characteristic that was to set Israel apart from the pagan nations is that Israel was supposed to be a witness to all the nations of the one true God. That was their their primary purpose and the major thing that was going to set them apart. So they were not to worship idols, which at that time were generally, you know, carved figures of of created things. So they weren't to worship idols instead of God. They weren't to worship idols in addition to God. They weren't to worship idols at all. So the second commandment is a, is a command not to worship carved figures as idols. And then this next thing, if we examine the immediate context of Exodus uh, 24, 4 and 5, it follows verses 1 through 3, which establish the supremacy of God above all other gods. And they specifically state that Israel is not to worship any other gods. And if you look at your cross-references, I went through and I looked up all my cross-references. The cross-references that I got for the second commandment were Leviticus 26.1, Deuteronomy 27.15, and Psalm 97.7. And all of them have to do with idol worship. Mm-hmm. So we look at the immediate context of the verse as well. <clears throat> And then what we want to do is we want to take a close look at the, the actual content of Exodus 24 and 5. The passage doesn't say anything about making a representation of God himself. We need to remember Jesus had not yet been born when this was written. So the passage could not have been talking about making a representation of Jesus. 
it talks about making representations of created things in the sky, like planets and the sun, etc. Um, making representations of things on the earth and in the water and worshiping them, which is actually what the pagan nations around Israel were doing in their worship. They were making these representations of the sun and the stars and the, you know, fish and animals and things like that and worshiping them. And certainly also calling any graven images God, you know, giving them the name God and worshiping them as God would also be prohibited as we remember in the golden calf incidents. Remember the, they, yeah. they made the golden calf and they were saying, this is your God who has brought you up out of Israel. So we know that that's prohibited as well. And then finally, there are at least two occasions in the Old Testament when God instructs Moses to make a graven figure. And both of these instances are far more conducive to actual worship of the figures than a nativity scene or, for example, a Sunday school flannel graph that we remember flannel graphs, Amy? Oh, no, not, no, that was a church thing. And I didn't. Oh, that's that. right. You didn't have that. That's right. Well, I'm old and I remember flannel graphs from when I was a kid. But anyway. So the first instance is just five chapters after the second commandment in Exodus 25. Um, The first instance is God's instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. So God instructs Moses to have the people make two cherubim, which are angels, for the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark. Um, God's people were not to worship the cherubim or the Ark, but the Ark was the holiest object used in Israel's worship ceremonies. So it would have been easy for the people to cross the line and worship it or worship the cherubim. And yet God commanded the making of these figures that were not to be worshiped, but he commanded the making of these figures to point the people to him. And guess what was put into the ark right under those (laughs) graven figures of cherubim, the two tablets of the 10 commandments, which included the second commandment. So that was the first instance when God commanded the making of these graven images of of cherubim. The second instance was when God instructed Moses to make the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Anyone who had been fatally snake bitten could look up at that serpent and his life would be saved. So how much more likely would an Israelite have been to worship the bronze serpent commissioned by God and instrumental in saving his life than we are to worship a picture of Jesus in a children's Bible? Jesus himself said that this graven image of the of the serpent pointed ahead to his death on the cross and used it as an illustration of his crucifixion, much like a nativity scene is an illustration of his incarnation. Now, if God himself commissioned the casting of these figures of created things not to be worshipped, but as tools to point people to himself, would it stand to reason that he would prohibit reverent representations of Christ that point to or teach about him? Comparing the second commandment with these two instances of graven figures demonstrates to us that God expects his people to be able to distinguish between using objects as tools or illustrations that point to him and worshiping those objects. So to sum up, I I really don't think the preponderance of scripture supports the idea that it's a violation of the second commandment to use occasional reverent representations of Christ 
to point people to him. And it's also not a sin to honor the Lord by refraining from using representations of Christ and finding other ways to point people to him. So whichever side of the issue we come down on, we, we need to make sure that we're being respectful and loving yeah. to people on the other side and not making a law for them where no law exists or accusing one side of sin or the other side of legalism. So those are my thoughts on it. Amy, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Well, I'm just really thankful that you um, spent this time to dig deep into scripture to find this because a lot of people will just do this based on emotion or or opinion, and then people do become disrespectful, and that's how that happens. Um, scripture mm-hmm. is always uh, our go-to, and so I'm I'm really glad you said that. Um, I may not have grown up with flannel graphs, but um, <laughs> we actually did have a little um, nativity scene, a little manger set there, and um, in, in true uh, late 1960s. 1960- 60s style, uh, we had glitter all over our different colors of <laughs> glitter. And so even the little sheep had uh, white glitter and Mary, of course, had the blue glitter going on. And the only thing that didn't have glitter on it was the little baby Jesus, which weirdly, um, baby Jesus was much bigger than poor Mary, but if she'd actually given birth <laughs> to that uh, thing there. But I, as a kid, though, I was fascinated by um, by this nativity scene. I didn't have any idea who Jesus was or what this was all about, but um, it really piqued my interest. And so um, I really have fond memories of that. And of course, yeah. nobody worshipped. Yeah, nobody worshipped the uh, the figurines right. at all, of course. So anyway, that's all I would add is just, just that um, I'm very thankful that uh, scripture illuminates all of these things. Yes, God is so good to give us his word to help us out with these things. Yes. Amen. All right. Well, he- here's our next question. And this one's another one from Instagram. Okay. Is there is there a tactful way to help evangelize unbelieving family? My husband and I are the only believers in either of our families. Oh, that's a great question. Well, uh, and actually, we did a show a few weeks ago about um, evangelizing um, during the holiday season, and uh, Michelle has has a great article too that um, we put up there, and we'll we'll share that again uh, in these show notes. But uh, we, you had tips from everything from um, going caroling together during the season, cooking together, and sharing tracts and that kind of thing to really kind of as icebreakers. Um, so there were some great tips in there. But what about um, when it's December 24th and December 25th and the families gathered around, you know, on the day of what, how do you evangelize then? And um, I can really relate to this Instagram user because my husband and I and um, our daughter, uh, we're the only believers on either side of our families. So, um, you know, we're the only followers of Christ as well. And when we uh, go, as we do every year, to stay with family members and celebrate Christmas Eve with one side and then Christmas Day with another out of state, it's really hard because none of it, uh, none of the activities that we go to are about Christ. Now, um, my husband and I do invite people to go to church with us, but really no one comes with us anymore. And um, I guess it's better than what we used to do, which was have everyone cram into the pews for a uh, Catholic mass. But <laughs> so, so we, we're now uh, on our own. And when our daughter is here, she goes with us too. So um, for those of us who have this challenge, we really have to pick our moments. And it's usually for us um, one-on-one with people at these gatherings. So, you know, the last thing we want to do 
is scold unbelievers for uh, not celebrating the true reason for the season. You know, they'll look at you like you have two heads or, you know, think that you're talking in cliches, which we kind of are. Um, and they <laughs> don't have the spiritual heart to do anything other than than mock that, what, what they hear, because it just sounds so unreasonable to them. So um, what we do is, you know, as we gather around the grazing table, uh, we can ask sort of privately or semi-privately how we can pray for them. And, and that really helps with family. Um, use the opportunity to really listen. I, I found that family members who are opposed to um, the gospel most of the year at Christmas time, they're, they're really appreciative of um, people asking them, you know, how can you pray for them much more than you might think. Um, one thing that we have started doing also is bringing pamphlets and tracts that our church hands out, and uh, you know you can uh, they they encourage you to just take stacks of those things. So uh, we do that. We um, slip them into stockings and in with our gifts. Um, we've given Bibles before as gifts, and um, and Christian books too uh, for people who are curious. And there are some books that are um, really recommended for uh, people who are just you know maybe they don't know Christ, but they want to just um, do a little background reading. So. We've done that before too, Michelle. Any thoughts on that from your end? Yeah, I I just agree with everything that you've said. I I would only add maybe a couple of things. Just um, and I'm sure that you do this with your family as well, Amy. Is that you? You're constantly praying for them. I mean, oh, pray yes. for them. You know, even before you get together, and and certainly they're probably on your your daily prayer list or your weekly prayer list as well to pray for their salvation. And then I w- I would just um, encourage our reader. You know, a lot of times we feel like okay, if I don't get in there and seize the moment and say exactly the right thing at exactly the right time and um, present the entire gospel in one filled swoop, that these people are never going to get saved. And I would just (laughs) encourage you to relax and to remember that salvation is all of Christ. God, people don't get saved until God decides it's the right time and saves them, which is not, it's certainly not any sort of excuse for not sharing the gospel. But what I'm saying is try to go into the holidays and family gatherings and things like that. um, Thinking about uh, how much you trust God to, to save people in his own timing and realizing that you are just there to scatter seed, especially at events like this where there are parties and get togethers and things like that. And, um, you know, maybe just, um, make some, some small comments here or there. Like Amy said, ask how you can pray for them. Um, and maybe, you know, a, full, a full blast gospel presentation might need to wait until after the holidays. Holidays can be kind of emotional times for families. Um, especially if you have a bunch of people crammed in a small house and everybody's getting on everybody's nerves. Um, they might not want to happen. Does the gospel right? (laughs) Oh man. Certainly not in my family. I mean, I'm sure that never happens in my family, but anyway, um, that's, other than that, I think, Amy, yeah. your advice is just spot on. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, there's so many more questions. We'll try to get to a few more here. Um, our next question, this one's from Twitter. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, by the way, at AWFS Podcast. All right. So um, when people use the term Xmas instead of Christmas, isn't that taking Christ out of Christmas? And should Christians use the term Xmas? Michelle, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it seems like more and more people are asking it every year. And, you know, I, I got to thinking about it. It's kind of understandable that people would think that. I mean, we use the letter X as an unknown variable in math. And yeah. we say things like, I use brand X detergent or something like that. So it can kind of seem like X is a place filler. It can, it can stand for practically anything. But that's not the case with the X in Xmas. That X has a finite value. X equals one, the one and only Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, here's how the term Xmas came about. So as you know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and we get our English word Christ from the Greek word Christos. And in the original Greek, Christos starts with the Greek letter Ka. If you're familiar with any fraternities or sororities that have Chi as part of their name, you know that Chi looks just like the English letter X. Mm -hmm. Everybody following me so far? Okay. Um, In English, Christ starts with a C, but in Greek, Christos or Christ starts with an X, and that's where we get Xmas from. So in the term Xmas, rather than the X taking Christ out of Christmas, the letter X actually stands for Christ. Now, do most of the people who use the term Xmas know all of that? Probably not. So there might be some atheists or other people out there who hate the things of God and use Xmas because they can't bear to write the name of Christ or because they really do want to take Christ out of Christmas or because they just want to take a poke at Christians and antagonize them. (laughs) But I really think that people like that are they're still the fringe minority. It seems to me that most regular non-Christians who use the term Xmas seem simply to do so to save time and space in what they're writing. You know, just simple as that, like an uh, uh, Mm -hmm. abbreviation. And when I Googled Xmas, I I got on the Google machine and just put Xmas (laughs) in the search bar. And the two main uses that I saw pop up for the term were articles like, why do people use Xmas instead of Christmas? That was one of the main things. (laughs) And the other one was like space-saving product descriptors like uh, Xmas tea, red, long sleeve, short sleeve, small, medium, and large on sales websites. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like it's mainly an abbreviation that people just use to save space. There's nothing sinister about it. So then the question arises, should Christians use the term Xmas? Um, I would avoid it whenever possible, not because it's a sin, because it isn't, which means you have the biblical right to use it if you want to. But I would suggest avoiding it because, like I said, most people don't know what the term Xmas means. And when they see you use it, it could be a stumbling block to a weaker brother or a new Christian. That person might very well think that you're trying to take Christ out of Christmas or start some kind of, so to speak, war on Christmas. First Corinthians 8, 9 says this. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Putting, putting aside our own rights in order to care, care for and love others in the body is a really important theme in the New Testament. We see it in Romans 14. We see it in 1 Corinthians 8. We see it in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's just all over the place in the New Testament. And, you know, not using the term Xmas is a really small right to lay down for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would also say the same thing about our earlier question about nativity scenes. Um, You know, I still have a nativity scene in my house because it's not a problem for for my family or anyone that I know um, that comes over 
to our house for us to have a nativity scene with a baby Jesus in it. But ever since I became familiar with the issue that it's a, it's a problem for some people, I've tried to avoid posting images on social media or my blog that contain depictions of Jesus. Sometimes if there's an image that I really need to use that has a depiction of Jesus in it, I'll Photoshop it to cover up the representation of Jesus because I love my fellow Christians who would be offended by that. Hmm. You know, Jesus laid down his life for us. We can lay down Xmas and nativity scenes for our (laughs) brothers and sisters. It's very, a small thing to do. Amy, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add on that? Well, I think you covered that part of it really well. It just, um, as you were talking, I was just reminded of about five years ago when um, people were really getting into the culture wars and getting very offended when, you know, clerks at at stores at Christmas time um, said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas and just getting all bent out of shape. And I'm so glad that you don't hear that much anymore. It just uh, was a ridiculous argument because, you know, we're we're not (laughs) here to fight the culture. Culture wars. We're here to proclaim Christ. So, anyway, right. <laughs> just my two cents there. Um, so, yeah, that, that's all I really had on that one. Okay. Well, I think we have time for one more question, and this one also comes to us by way of Twitter. What is the purpose of Advent candles, and do you find them helpful in a worship service? Reformed Christians, from a regulative mm-hmm. principle of worship perspective, would say that they do not believe or that they do, excuse me, that they do not belong because as an element of worship, scripture doesn't command it. So Amy, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, it's true, Christian, uh, the, the scripture does not command it or any other element for that matter. Um, so, you know, Advent candles, so if you're not familiar, um, some believe that we really have no business celebrating uh, using Advent at all, candles or otherwise, because they say it's Catholic. And I've, I've long been waiting to use this expression in a podcast, pish posh. You know, <laughs> I know, I know, it's one of those throwback words, but um, Advent really has probably been observed since about the fourth century. So, um, you know, come on. Originally, it was a time when um, converts to Christianity readied themselves for baptism. And then during the Middle Ages, Advent became associated with preparation for the second coming. So the word Advent itself means arrival or an appearing or coming into place. So Christians often speak of Christ's first Advent and second Advent. So that is his first and second comings to earth. And his first Advent would be the incarnation, of course, Christmas time. Um, But the Advent season lasts for four Sundays, and it begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas or the nearest Sunday to uh, November 30th. So, um, and it ends on Christmas Eve. And so it's really not considered, you know, that one part of the Christmas season. The Advent celebration Mm -hmm. is really both a, a commemoration of Christ's first coming and the anticipation of his second coming. And so sometimes at Christmas time, we forget, hey, he came once, but he's coming back. And so as far as Advent candles go, um, that yes, can be used as an element of worship. It's not a sin to do that. Um, So if you've never heard of Advent candles before, um, the first candle is purple and it symbolizes hope. And it's sometimes called the prophecy candle in remembrance of the prophet Isaiah, who foretold of the birth of Christ. And the second candle is also purple, and it represents faith. And um, some people call it the Bethlehem candle as a reminder of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. And then the third candle is sometimes called the shepherd's candle, and it is pink because rose is a, a liturgical color for joy. 
And then the fourth uh, week of Advent, uh, one more purple candle called the Angel's Candle symbolizes peace, as in peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And then on Christmas Eve, some churches will light a white candle in the center called the Christ candle, uh, white for purity, because Christ is our sinless, pure Savior. And uh, we're seeing a growing number of churches kind of uh, get into the Advent season, and they, they do special readings of Scripture. Again, not a sin. Lighting candles, not a sin. Um, it's a choice. It, you know, it's, it's an element of worship that your church can either choose to do or not choose to do. So that there you have it. Yeah, I think it's a really nice tradition. You know, I think if, as as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, our families have traditions, We, mm-hmm. you know, related to Christmas or not, we all have family traditions that we do. And it, there's nothing wrong with a church family having a traditional um, thing that they do at Advent season too. I mean, yeah. these are things that bind us together. They're, they make us, you know, our family traditions kind of make us the unique families that we are. And the same thing goes for church traditions too. And I know some people are kind of scared of the word tradition when it comes to, to church, but traditions aren't necessarily bad if they are biblical and if you're doing them for the right reasons. Right. Now I know we, the, the, the person who asked the question mentioned the regulative principle of worship. And I know some of our listeners probably don't know what that is, but just the gist of, of the regulative principle of worship is that um, we only do things in our worship services that are prescribed in scripture. And then the opposite of that would be the normative principle of worship, which basically says the opposite of that. If it's not prohibited in scripture, you can do it. Right. So I guess I think what a church who, who subscribes to the regulative principle of worship needs to do is, is hold a meeting and <laughs> hash it out and discuss it and discuss what's biblical about it or why they should or shouldn't do it. And that that church should decide if that's something that they want to do or not. Um, I, I've been in churches that do it. I've been in churches that don't do it. Um, and uh, I don't think, you know, it, it doesn't make you any holier if you do it. And it doesn't make you sinful if you don't do it. So right. <laughs> uh, I think it's a nice biblical tradition and each church can decide for itself. Oh, I agree with you there. And, then, and that's a good way to do it as a family. Um, so uh, we probably are going to get some more questions as we always do uh, when we do shows like these. So um, we're happy to answer questions um, as they come in. So um, Michelle, let's do that. Let's store some of these up and uh, answer those questions in another podcast in the future. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds All right. great. Yeah, we've had a great time answering your questions on this special Christmas episode of Glad You Asked. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode for more information. And again, we're going to be doing more Glad You Asked episodes in the future. So keep sending those questions about the Bible and how to apply it to your life. You can reach us at a awordfitlyspoken.life or any of our other social media pages, which you can find on our website. So until next time, walk worthy.